This is a Courageous Church podcast, equipping and empowering you to live a courageous life. Join us now as we listen to a message from Courageous Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. Two weeks ago, I made the statement that God has called us to a prophetic destiny as a people and as a church that is both future-oriented and hopeful, come on, not fearful, about the days in which we're living. How many of you guys have a hope for what God is doing in your life right now? Amen? And we looked at a very specific prophetic passage in the book of Acts chapter 15 and Amos 9, talking about how God is gonna rebuild the tent of David, this, this beautiful living picture of the future restoration of Israel where Jews and Gentiles and people from all different tribes, tongues, and nations will come together to experience the glory of God forever as the family and people of God. Isn't that good? I love that the Lord has a future and a hope for all of us, amen? And today we're gonna pick up with where we left off in Acts 15, so if you have a Bible, go there today. And I'm gonna reread verses 15 through 18 before we get to our primary text, which is 19 and 20. It'll be on the screen for those of you that don't have a Bible, let's read it together. And with this, the words of the prophet agree, just as it was written, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from days of old. And may the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. I also made the remark that Currently, as the church, this is where we find ourselves caught in between two tensions. The tension of what Jesus did at Pentecost and sending his spirit and sending wind and fire into the church to empower her to be his witnesses in the earth. And when Jesus will come again to restore and rebuild this tent of David, a beautiful living illustration of God's people coming together from all over the world. And we see this happen specifically as a prophetic promise for Israel in the days in which we're living. We know that Jesus will restore David's tent from the city of David to sit upon the throne of David forever. Here's what Isaiah 16 verse five says, echoing this promise. Then a throne will be established in steadfast love and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. See, the, the Bible has constantly been pointing us toward the coming of Jesus and not just his first coming, but also in his second coming. And today we're gonna pick up with some of that and, and we're gonna shift gears a little bit and, and talk about a few things that are related to what it looks like for you and I as Gentiles that are grafted into this thing called the people of God. We're gonna look at how God wants us to live now in light of this future reality and this invitation to be a part of it. We know that Jesus is the one that is coming to rule and reign over this earth. And he will do so from his great, great, great grandfather, David's throne. He'll do so from a restored tent. And we talked about how David's tent is this open picture of God's presence being available, not just to Jews, but to Gentiles. Today, I wanna talk about how God wants us to live in light of this reality, in light of being grafted into Israel, in light of being invited to participate in David's tent. And the title of my message for anybody taking notes is, don't do as the Romans do. <laughs> don't do as the Romans do. Anybody ever hear that expression? When in Rome, do as the Romans do. 
few years ago, Candace and I had the opportunity to go and travel to Rome, which was pretty cool. And one of the things that you, you recognize first and foremost as an American is that uh, everybody loves coffee. Come on, somebody. Yeah. And the food is amazing. Anybody ever been to Rome? Anybody been to Italy? Yeah. Some, wow, that was a lot more hands than I thought would go up. That's pretty impressive. And so the idea behind this phrase, when in Rome, do as the Romans do, is really this idea that when you're in a place that's different from the place that you've been in, that you practice the customs or the, or the, the cultural things of that place so as not to stand out, right? So, so as to, to, to better fit in. But how many of you guys know that as the people of God and as the family of God, we're not called to fit in. Come on, we're called to stand out. We're not called to be of this world. We're, we're called to be not of this world. We just spent 20 weeks in the book of Hebrews talking about it. And so today we're going to talk about what it means to not do as the Romans do, but to do as the people of God do, as those who are beloved, come on somebody, as those who are holy and even chosen. Listen to what 1 Peter says in chapter 2, verse 9 through 10. It says it this way, but you are a chosen race. Anybody feel chosen today? How many thankful for that? You are a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. If I could ask somebody to get me a glass of water too, that would be most wonderful and welcome today. So interestingly enough, this passage we see right here, 1 Peter chapter 2 and 9, 9 through 10, is actually written to Jewish believers who were exiles in the Gentile diaspora. In fact, Peter's writing to this Jewish remnant of believers who are living as exiles who have lost their way. They've kind of forgotten the fact that they know the scriptures and that God's truth has already come to them. And as a result, they're living compromised lives. And so he's reminding them, hey, people of God, this is how I want you to live in a way that is honorable. Verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and as exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Peter is using this language here very specifically, and he's using this language of sojourner to remind them of their time when they were sojourners in the wilderness, when they were following the pillar by day and the cloud by night, amen? Or the cloud by day and the pillar by night, I should say. When they were camping out in tents and in booths, we talked about this two weeks ago, the sukkah is this representation of when the people lived together in tents and they were following God through the wilderness as sojourners who were brought up out of where? Egypt. And then he uses this language of exile, sojourners and exiles to also remind them of how God brought them up out of their captivity in Babylon. You guys remember in the history of Israel, after they had fallen into sin and idolatry, the Lord exiles them into Babylon, where they were ruled over by the Babylonians. And so Peter is, is doing this to remind them that they've been called out of these realities. They've been called out of Egypt. They've been called out of Babylon. They're called to not be in the world, but come on. Not be of this world, be in the world, but not of the world. There we go. Come on, Pastor Jason, you can do it. <laughs> so he's using very specific language to remind them that they're called to be different. Now, I want you to hear the parallel to this in Leviticus chapter 18, verses one through three. And we're gonna spend some time in Leviticus today. 
But here's what verse one says. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord, your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes or in their ways. What is God saying here? He's saying, don't do as the Egyptians do. He's saying, don't do as the Babylonians do. And to us today, as Gentiles grafted into this mix, he's saying to us, don't do as the Romans do. With that in mind, let's turn again to Acts 15. And uh, let's pick up right where we left off with verses 19 through 20. And this is going to be kind of our primary text today that we're going to focus on. And here's what it says. Therefore, verse 19, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled and from blood. So remember, what has happened is the church has convened a council in Jerusalem. All right, so they've come together in Jerusalem to discuss what are we going to do about all these Gentiles being grafted in? What are we going to do about all these, these people who have come out of this pagan, Greek, Greco-Roman culture? How are we going to help them learn how to be the people of God? How do we do this? And so some Pharisees have kind of risen up and they're trying to get, you know, all the Gentiles to be circumcised. And of course, Peter's already established that they don't have to be circumcised, that that's not really what God's looking for them in regards to their inclusion in the family of God. But there are some practices and there are some things that they come together to actually agree upon that they believe that these Gentiles should actually practice. Let's look at this list. Let's throw it up there. He calls them to abstain from blood. The, the, Hebrew, the Greek word is haima and from strangled things, niktos. And we see a picture of this actually in Leviticus 17. Then he calls them to abstain from sexual immorality. The word is porneia. And we see a picture of what sexual immorality or porneia looks like in Leviticus 18. And then he calls them to abstain from things that are polluted, or, polluted by or sacrificed to idols, which is the word idolon. And we see a whole chapter in Leviticus 19 regarding idolatry. Now, before we jump into these things, I want to make something really clear about the book of Leviticus and the way that I think, that I think we can approach it today as believers. Some, some helpful ways that we can understand some of these commands. But first, I want to make a couple of caveats, okay? Some people make the case that today, because we are living under a new covenant, a covenant of grace that we discard and throw out the law altogether. In fact, some people make the case that because we're living under grace, that we discard or unhitch from the Old Testament altogether. Let me tell you why I think that's actually dangerous and wrong. Are you ready? The reason this approach is wrong, and the reason I believe this approach is dangerous, is because 75.5% of your Bible is Old Testament. So we might as well tear out 75 three-fourths of our Bibles if we're going to unhitch from them. I don't think that's wise. In fact, that number increases from 75% to 85% if you add in all of the indirect prophetic allusions and references as well, which is pretty amazing. And this is the argument that these people tend to make. Well, if Jesus forgave my sins and did what I could not do in fulfilling the law, then I should disregard the law and basically live however the heck I want to. Anybody met 
a Christian that lives this way, that uses grace as a license to sin and to do whatever the heck they want? Anybody met a Christian who uses the scriptures to justify their actions and, and to twist them to support the way that they live and, and believe? Yeah, sure, we all have. People that often hold to this view assume that we should write off all of the Old Testament and the commandments. In the Bible, the word commandment is mitzvah. But that's not actually what we find the apostles doing and or saying both here in Acts and in 1 John, written by the apostle John. You guys know him. Here's what he says, 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God. Time out. I thought love is love, Pastor Jay. I'm not here to rain on anybody's love parade today, but let's get some biblical definitions for love. Are you ready? This is the love of God, not period, but comma, that we keep his commandments. And here's the good news to all of you who were a little worried. His commandments are not burdensome. Now, for those who do not believe, his commandments are very burdensome, let me tell you. How many of you, before you came to Jesus, found yourself struggling under the weight of his commandments, right? All of us. But for those that are in Christ Jesus, this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments, we know, are not burdensome. In fact, they're not a burden, they're a delight. Listen to what the psalmist says to us. In Psalm 119, verse 35, he says, lead me in the path of your commandments, your mitzvah, for I delight in it. Now, scholars debate whether or not this psalm was written by David, but David elsewhere says, says things like this, I delight in your law. I delight in your commandments. Here, lead me in the path of them, for I delight in it. It's a delight to those of us in Christ Jesus to keep his commands, to keep them, not to skirt them, not to try to explain them away, and certainly not to unhitch from them. Come on, somebody. All right. Listen to what Jesus said regarding the law and the commandments, saying in Matthew 5, verse 17 through 18, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or abolish the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will ever pass from the law until all is accomplished. Let me ask you, has heaven and earth passed away yet? Okay, this isn't heaven yet? You sure? Touch your neighbor and ask him, is this heaven? Are you heavenly? No. <laughs> We are very much still here on earth. It hasn't passed away. And if it hasn't passed away, then guess what? God's law remains. And let me ask you, has God done everything that he said he was gonna do in setting the world to rights? Has he wiped away every tear from our eyes? Has he done away with evil yet? No, then his law remains. And Jesus has already made the point to say that nothing, not a single dot, not an iota will pass from it until God fully and finally accomplishes everything in the end. So the question is, then what has exactly changed? I'm glad you asked. What's changed is this. It's the manner in which the law now gets expressed in and through your life and my life through a new and better covenant built on new and even better promises. Listen to what 
Jeremiah, the, the prophet, would say about the way in which the law gets expressed in our lives. And we see it in, here's Hebrews 8, quoting from Jeremiah 31. We just looked at it a couple months ago. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of what? Of Israel. Remember, salvation comes first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. This is the covenant that I'll make with Israel after those days, declares the Lord, that I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. The word law there in the original Hebrew from Jeremiah 31 is Torah. I will put my Torah in their mind and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. Verse 12, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. How many are thankful that God is merciful toward your iniquity and that he remembers your sin no more? We're so thankful for that. And out of a grateful, thankful heart should, should come a desire to delight in keeping his commands for this is the love of God. This is the actual picture of this new covenant that we celebrate each and every time we take communion. In fact, in just a few minutes, we're gonna take communion together as a church. There's communion plates down here at the front on both aisles. We're gonna do that at the close of my message. But this is the covenant that we, we celebrate. Hebrews 8, verses 10 and 12. This is the covenant that we, we recognize every time we remember what Jesus did in having his body beaten and bruised and broken for our healing and his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. It's to fulfill this covenant, to enact this covenant, to inaugurate this new reality for you and I to live in. Therefore, I believe a much better view of how you and I are to relate to the law or toward mitzvah or Torah is this. Jesus died to forgive my sins, to fulfill the law on my behalf. How many of you guys know that you couldn't fulfill it? You couldn't keep it? You couldn't do it? Let that be known. So that the truth of the law could then be expressed in our lives. Because what is written on the heart and the mind should always lead to action in the way that we live. You guys believe that? What God does in putting his law on their minds and hearts should lead the people of God, including you and I, to live differently. Amen? Which is why when the apostles in Acts 15 come together and they're arguing over the Gentiles and how they should now live in light of them being brought into this new covenant alongside Israel, they finally come to this agreement over which Levitical practices or which commandments or, or mitzvah that they and the Holy Spirit believe the Gentiles would do well to follow. Practices that seem to transcend culture, that seem to transcend place, or even move beyond time. Let's look at it. Acts 15, verse 28 through 29. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. See, if the apostles had just come to an, an earthly conclusion among themselves that they just wanted the Gentiles to practice some of these things, we might all go, hmm, okay, well, that's good for them. But interestingly enough, the Holy Spirit of God, the Neshama of God, the breath of God, the wind and fire of God believed that this was good for them, and I believe today for us. 
And here it is, once again, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. You know what God's heart for each and every one of us is? It's that we would do well. You know how I like to say it? That you and I would flourish. Anybody want to flourish? Anybody want to do well? In fact, we know that that one of the, the things that God wants for our souls is for it to be well with our souls, right? For them to prosper and to be in health. God wants your life to flourish. And can I just say this? God has always wanted his people's lives to flourish. The law and the commandments of God were given to express the heart of God, the character of God, the nature of God. For a people caught up in sexual sin and idolatry and blood sacrifices and other things that were robbing them from a life of flourishing. And I believe that today within the church, many people have unhitched from promises and commandments for their life that were actually given to help them flourish. This whole, I'm, I'm a man of grace, I can do whatever I want, is the most bogus idea that I've ever heard. So today we're going to look at these three realities, and I've kind of bundled together one of them, blood and strangled things, but we're going to look at these three things because the Holy Spirit seems to think that we would do well if we follow them. And can we throw that list up there again? Let's go back one slide. That we would abstain from blood, strangle things, sexual morality, and idols. Blood, strangled things, sexual morality, and things polluted by idols. With that said, let's unpack it. Number one, God calls his people to abstain from blood and strangled things. Why are we called to abstain from consuming blood and strangled things? And strangled things, the reason I I combine these two is that strangled things were things that still had blood caught in their circulatory system. When animals were strangled to death back in the day, the blood would go out into their circulatory system and get stuck. So when that meat was later consumed, you were actually consuming that animal's blood. Why are we called to abstain from this? Why did the apostles deem this a good practice for us Gentiles? I'll tell you why. Because the blood is holy to God. It's holy because God has put the power of life itself in the blood. Leviticus 17.11 says it this way, for the life of the Flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. You see, God has placed the power of life in the blood, and when we say that the life is in the blood, this is what we mean. We, we mean exactly what Leviticus 17 verse 11 means. Now, of course, the ancient Hebrews, they didn't have microscopes like we have today. How many of you are, have ever been in biology classes or, or studied biology? Some of you are doing that right now, the you. You ever get to use one of those high-powered microscopes? They're pretty cool, right? And you get those little slides that have specimens in them, and you get to study the cells or the breakdown of cells. This is, this is amazing. I, let's, step, let's step back and just think about this for a second. The way that God has designed your body and mine. He puts within us this connective fluid called blood that runs all throughout our bodies, that brings life to all of our members, that helps fuel our brains, that carries oxygen, all of these incredible things. And because of this incredible reality that God has placed life within the blood, he wants us to honor 
the blood, to abstain from consuming it because it's sacred, because it's holy. This is one of the reasons why we fight for unborn life, mind you, because we believe that God has placed within the blood of every cell power of life itself, and that life is holy, and that life is sacred. So whether you think an unborn child is simply a fetus or a cluster of cells, God has placed life within each and every cell. So that's why we fight for unborn life, because we believe it's holy, we believe it's, it's sacred, we believe that it should be preserved, which I believe makes it even more demonic when you hear of people consuming or drinking the blood of children. Now, as controversial as that might sound to some of you today, this was actually a practice rooted in history. I don't know if you know this. We're talking about how God has called us not to do as the Romans do, but speaking of the Romans, back in the day, in the gladiator days of the Colosseum, they would actually go around, there were vendors like you would have at a baseball game going around not selling peanuts, but selling blood that was harvested from young slave girls mixed with milk. Did you guys know that? They would go all throughout the crowd selling it. It was actually like the monster energy drink of the day. People were like consuming it. Those that had the, the money and the means to. And then even more disgusting and demonic, when a gladiator would fall on the battlefield, they would slit his throat, collect his blood, and then go sell it to the people out in the crowd. So when we hear of people today drinking blood and we hear the controversies over the blood of children, all these things, and we think it's so far-fetched, you guys, it's not that far-fetched. For, for thousands of years, ancient civilizations did this. You study the, the Aztecs or the Mayans. Anybody ever been to any of the Mayan pyramids? Canis and I, years ago, we had our honeymoon down in Cancun. We went and explored the Mayan pyramids and we got to learn some of the history. And I'll tell you what, some of the history is pretty demonic. The blood sacrifices, the things that they were doing with these children, I mean, it's disgusting, but it's not all that unlike our day today, which is why God calls us to abstain from consuming blood. And most importantly, the reason we, we do this, we, the reason we honor the blood as holy is because Jesus gave his blood for his bride. He gave his blood for you and I, his precious spotless blood, which is the blood of this covenant. We used to sing about it a whole lot more in the church years ago, but I guess the seeker sensitive folks decided it wasn't sanitary enough for outsiders to hear about. But I remember a day growing up where you, you'd hear songs about the blood. Oh, the blood of Jesus. Oh, the blood of Jesus. Oh, the blood of Jesus. It washes white as snow. Right? The blood is holy. Jesus gave his blood for us so that we could stand here righteous, ransomed, and redeemed today. Amen? So don't do as the Romans do. Do as the people of God and honor the blood. Number two, God calls us to abstain from sexual immorality. The word here used in the Greek is the word porneia. One of the reasons why James and the apostles add this particular word porneia to the list of things that they believe the Gentiles should abstain from is because they know how steeped the Gentiles were in a pagan Greco-Roman culture that openly engaged in the practice of sexual immorality. Paul would later have to actually confront some of this in his church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 2 says this, It is actually reported 
that there is sexual immorality, that there is porneia among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. This is crazy. So the church was actually doing things that the culture didn't even do. He says, for a man has his father's wife. So a, a guy was sleeping with his, his stepmom. And you are arrogant about it, verse two. Ought you not rather to mourn? Should your heart not be grieved over this? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Church used to also practice this thing called church discipline back in the day, where people who are continually caught up in pornea would actually be removed so that they could be disciplined. In fact, in one instance, Paul actually says, I'd rather they be turned over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh than be destroyed utterly. Sometimes God even has to turn people over to their own sin so that they reach rock bottom so then they recognize and cry out for help. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 through 20 echoes this. He says, flee from sexual immorality, which is this word, porneia. Every other sin a person commits is where? It's outside of the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is actually the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You guys, that's what the Lord wants for his people in these days. That we'd learn not to glory in our bodies, the vanity of our day, the magazine covers, the Instagram influencers all want us to glory in our bodies, but God wants us to glorify him with our bodies. How do we do that? We do that by fleeing from sexual marriage. The word is to run from, to get out of the building as quickly as you can when you find yourself in a hostile place. Why does God want us to do this? Because he's just some big cosmic killjoy? <laughs> no. Why does God want us to flee from pornea? Because by committing pornea or sexual immorality, we're sinning against our own bodies, which is the temple of his Holy Spirit. I don't know if you knew this this morning, that when you got up and looked at yourself in the morning before you put on your makeup, or did your hair, or jumped in the shower, that you were looking at a divine representation of a temple. <laughs> Spouses, you need to, you need to tell your, your wife or your husband, I like your temple. But that's what the Bible says we are. We are now this beautiful picture of a temple of living stones constructed to glorify God, to house his spirit, his presence. So when we commit pornea, when we commit sexual morality, we're actually sinning against our own bodies and we're, we're degrading our temples with things that we were never meant to be defiled by. This is the essence behind the book of Leviticus. God's desperately trying to teach people how not to be defiled by the things of the world that are tainted by sin and death and the devil. And he's trying to help us, not because he's a cosmic killjoy, but because he loves us. Because as I said, he wants you and I to flourish. And there is a plan and a divine way in which he has designed you and I to do so. What is porneia, more specifically? Porneia was a common Greek term used to describe any general act of sexual fornication outside of marriage. But for Jews like Paul and like James here, 
and all the early apostles, their, their Jewish understanding of this word porneo is actually a whole lot more specific than just fornication. For the Jew, porneia meant forbidden union. Forbidden union. And all Jews, not just some, but all Jews derived their understanding of porneia, of this term, based on what was actually specifically prohibited by God in Leviticus 18. Acts that are considered forbidden union or forbidden sexual acts. Acts like incest. Acts like adultery. Acts like homosexuality. Acts like bestiality. And even child sacrifice makes the list, which is weird. You think, why is child sacrifice on there? Well, if you understand the context of what's going on in Leviticus 18, he's actually addressing people that were performing sex acts while they were placing their children on golden altars to be burned alive to Molech. It's the most disgusting, sickening, atrocious thing that we could ever think of. And this was going on in the cultures of the day. This was going on in the cultures of the Canaanites that God was wanting them not to emulate but to come out from and be different from. This was going on in, in the, the times of their, their day, and in some ways it's still going on today. Listen to what Leviticus 18, verse 20 through 23 says. And you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife, and so make yourself unclean with her. And you shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, and so profane the name of your God. For I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. And you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And you shall not lie with any animal and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is a perversion. So as a result of these, these practices that were going on all around them, God literally refers to these as an abomination and as a perversion. Those are his words, by the way. Very specific words that he chose. Now, wait a second, Pastor Jason. I thought all sin was sin. Thought it was all equal in the eyes of God. Can I tell you something? I've searched throughout the scriptures for that statement. All sin is sin. Haven't found it. Haven't found it. Instead, what I have found are places where God says, there are things that I detest and hate more than other things. Pornea happens to be one of those things that he detests and hates. According to how the Jews and the apostles understood it, to commit porneia was to profane the name of the Lord and to violate God's ordained and created order for how things are supposed to function and flourish in our lives. Not only does it violate your image of God, but it robs you from the way that God has actually designed you, hear me on this, it robs you from the way that God has designed you to be fruitful, to multiply, and to experience true, lasting joy, not just temporary pleasure. The truth is this, because of sin, all of us, hear me on this, all of us are born into this world with a broken sexuality in need of saving, healing, and transforming. Every single one of us, because of the seed of Adam and what he did, are born into a world already corrupted by sin, by a proclivity and inclination to not turn toward God, but to run from him and to run toward things and desires and pleasures that we abase ourselves with. This is why it doesn't matter if you think you were born this way or that way. Because Jesus says, you must be born again. 
You must be born from above. You must be born from the heavens. And that's the message for every single one of us today. Every single one of us. So the issue is not just about incest or adultery or homosexuality. The issue is about all of us as those that are grafted into this family of God, learning how to now practice our sexuality in a way that is actually healthy and helpful to our lives and not more harmful to them. The lie of our culture and the lie of the enemy is that what he has for us is better than what God has designed for us. And as a result, each and every one of us has fallen into that trap at one time or another, right? Isn't that what Romans says? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have. So Pastor Jason, how do we, how do we practice our sexuality in a way that's helpful, not harmful? How do we do that? Well, we learn how to flee from sexual immorality. We learn how to run from it. Anybody remember Joseph in the Old Testament? Remember when Potiphar's wife was throwing herself at him, trying to tempt him into porneia, trying to bring him into a forbidden union? She was already married to another man, right? Potiphar. What does Joseph do? He runs. He flees. Could you imagine with me what it would be like next time you or I were tempted to commit porneia, to, to step into sexual morality or sexual sin, if we just ran out of the room? On a nice cold winter's day, you just go for a little run. Amen? <laughs> the reason I think God really wants us to abstain from this, you guys, is not just because it's wrong. It's, it's, it's deeper than that. It's because it, it's harmful to us. It degrades and robs us from what God actually wants for us to experience. I think this is why porneia, above all other sinful practices, is the most harmful we see evidence in this, of this rampant in our culture today. Sexual morality has destroyed families. It's destroyed relationships. It's destroyed people's lives. And it always starts off as this little seed. It starts off as this little seed that grows into what? This cancer that spreads from the heart throughout the whole body. This is why Jesus would say things like this in Matthew 5, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Now, does Jesus actually want us to go get a saw and saw off our hands, gentlemen? No. Does he really want us to pluck out our eyes, ladies? No. He's using hyperbolic language to, to, to stress and exaggerate the point that if there's anything in your life that is wooing you, drawing you, causing you to stumble, to fall into sexual sin or immorality, you've got to do everything that you can to remove it, to flee from it, to run out of the house. That's the invitation for us as the people of God. It's one of the reasons why we practice fasting because when we fast, as I was talking about with Leah earlier this week, when we fast, we're feeding a different kind of appetite. We're starving our fear and we're feeding our faith. We're learning how to abstain from things and depend wholly on God. 
When we abstain from practices of sexual sin or immorality, we're saying, God, I trust you. God, I depend on you. God, your grace is enough. In my weakness, your grace can be put on display. In my weakness, your grace is made perfect. It's us learning how to depend on his strength, which is what we need. That's why we practice fasting, because we learn how to feed a different kind of appetite in our lives. That's why God wants us to practice absence. It's not because he's a killjoy. It's because he wants us to learn how to depend on him. Might I suggest to you that Jesus was not at his weakest at the end of 40 days of fasting in the wilderness, but that he was at his strongest. We got the story upside down. We think, here's Jesus. 40 days, oh, just trying to make it. If I can just get to that 41st day, I'll do it. But can I suggest to you that rather than Jesus being at his weakest, he had never been more focused. He'd never been more strong. How do I know this? Because when the tempter came, hey, Jesus, you see all these stones? Why don't you turn them all into bread? He could say to the devil, it is written, devil, you shall not live by what? Bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Hey, Jesus, why don't you just bow down and worship me? Just, just give me a little kiss. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only. Jesus was able to defeat and disarm every fiery dart that the devil sent his way, both neutralizing and distinguishing each and every one of those. I would suggest to us that there's strength found on the other side of our fasting. There's strength found on the other side of our praying. There's strength found in our other, on the other side of our trusting and depending on God to give us something better if we wait. For those of you that are single, come on, I'm talking to you today. Those of you that are married, I'm talking to you today. Your life is not found in pornography. Your life is not found in the arms of another lover. Your life is not found in a polyamorous relationship. We went out to dinner with a couple, a couple months ago. She was the daughter of the third wife of a man that had been married seven times here. I don't know, it was like 30 kids or whatever. <laughs> Look at the history of polygamy and polyamory, all these things. Ultimately, what are they rooted in? They're rooted in this. They're rooted in this, this attraction to things that actually violate the design of God for our lives, that keep us from flourishing. And that's not what he wants for us, church. More than anything, we need to practice depending on God so that we can flee from sexual immorality and pornea. And finally, number three today, we abstain from things that are polluted by or sacrificed to idols. Leviticus 19 verses one through four says this, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to all of the congregation of the people of Israel, speak to the church and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God am holy. And every one of you shall revere his mother and his father and you shall keep my Sabbaths for I am the Lord your God. Verse four, do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal, for I am the Lord your God. You see, idols have always been this problem for both Jews and Gentiles alike. 
And they pair well with practices that lead us into porneia, into sexual immorality. Essentially, the two primary questions in our culture today is, who do I get to have sex with and who do I worship? Who do you get to have sex with and who gets your worship? Idolatry is essentially false worship. It's worshiping the wrong God at the wrong altar with the wrong hope. What's the hope, Pastor Jay? The hope is that by worshiping this idol, it will give you something that you lack or fulfill something in you that you desire most. But the truth about idols is that these are actually false representations of the very thing that God wants to give you of himself. His presence, his nature, his person. Doing what? Filling you like a temple. God, in me you have placed all surpassing power in this cracked jar of clay. In me you have placed the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the grave. In me you have placed a different identity, a different calling, a different purpose, a different hope. Which means what else do I need? But here's what we do. We start looking at the world. We start looking at the advertisements and the marketing and the the subtle and sometimes even less subtle things that are trying to grab us and pull us into their snare. And that's what it is. It's a snare from the enemy. Idols are snares. In fact, the truth is even a good thing can become a, a snare, an idol in our lives. Which is why Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14. Therefore, my dear friends, courageous church, flee from idolatry. So God calls us to what? Flee from sexual morality, and he calls us to flee from idolatry to run. Ah, I'm getting out of here. Just to get out of the building, to get as far away from it as possible. Not to cozy up with it, put it under your pillow at night and hope it keeps you warm. Come on, somebody. Because ultimately, not only is is sexual immorality and idolatry traps set by the evil one to ensnare us, but ultimately it's his goal to get your worship. To get my worship, that's the ultimate question. Who is gonna receive your worship? And worship isn't just the four songs that we sang today. Worship is your life's response to a holy God who says, I am holy, now you be holy. How do we honor God with our bodies? How do we honor God with our worship? As living sacrifices of praise. What's a living sacrifice? It means that you lay your life down on his holy heavenly altar and you burn. And you burn. Just like the burning bush though, you're not consumed, you're alive, but you're a living sacrifice. The things in you that burn for him are the way in which you give him glory and praise, not just with your lips, but with your heart. I'm convinced that someday when we get to heaven, we're gonna see worshipers that we never knew were the greatest worshipers among us. And they weren't the people waving the flags and the tambourines. They might be, it's not for me to judge. But I'm convinced it might even just be that sweet old lady in the back row with just kneeling down just to lift a hand or to say, thank you, Abba. Thank you, Father. The burning of our lives before God is our worship. And that's why Jesus says, you cannot serve two masters. You've got to choose who you're going to worship so how do we do this? Well, it starts by us learning how to examine our hearts. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, to examine yourself. When's the last time you examined yourself? Now, listen, I, I don't like to go to the doctor or the dentist a whole lot, right? Who does? 
But why do we go in for an examination? To check to make sure everything's good, right? To make sure everything's working and functioning and flourishing the way that it's supposed to, amen? So Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you're actually still in the faith and test yourself. The idea of a test is that God is trying to to see what in you needs to be made stronger. A blacksmith would test the quality of his work by doing what? Putting it on the bench and pounding away at it, subjecting it to fire, making sure that the metal was tested, making sure that, that any sort of discrepancy in the quality or the condition of the sword or the instrument itself could be what? Refined. It could be improved. You guys, we've got to view the testing of the Lord in that way, that God wants to improve us. He doesn't want to harm us. He wants to, he wants to refine us as gold. That's actually what the book of Revelation says. Oh, that you'd be refined in the fire like gold. You know how you refine gold? you got to subject it to really high temperatures. Some of you right now, you're, you're going through that. You're going through a, a fiery experience. And God is subjecting you to some high temperatures, not because he hates you, because he loves you. You're like, why me, God? Why am I suffering? Why? Why, why, why? Right? Isn't that all of us when we're going through it? Why, God? Why? We have all these questions. Why, 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 why? Because we don't understand that that what we're going through is not meant to break us, but it's meant to form us. It's meant to forge us. In the hands of a blacksmith or a goldsmith, precious metal worker is our Lord. Now, if that analogy for you is, is too violent or too fierce, how about the analogy of the potter's hands? Like clay just being molded. And the reason I, I have a hard time getting my, hand, my head around that analogy is because I keep thinking of Patrick Swayze and Demi Moore in the movie Ghost. And I just, it's just too soft and too romantic. But I think it fits. God loves us. <laughs> just dated myself. <laughs> All the Gen Zs in the room are like, what? Who's Patrick Swayze? He loves us. When you go through the fire, and when, not if, when you go through the flames, it's because God loves you. And he's trying to forge you and he's trying to form you. He's trying to remove from you these impurities and these things that come from Babylon and not from the kingdom. You guys remember the story of the three Hebrew boys that wouldn't bow, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? The whole nation of Babylon They construct all these idols, all these gold statues, and Nebuchadnezzar's there, and the edict is to bow, and they won't bow. They continue to stand because they know who they are, and they know whose they are, and they know what they've been brought out of. They didn't get saved and delivered from Egypt to now bow in Babylon, to not do as the Romans do. And that's his calling to us today, and the question is, will you bow your knee to the God of this world, the God of Babylon, or will you stand for the King of Kings and his coming kingdom? In closing, I'll say this. If you don't stand for something in this day and age, you'll fall for anything. Can I say it again for those in the back? If you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. God wants his church to stand, and not just to stand, but to stand firm. Listen to what Galatians 5.1 says. It says, for freedom, Christ has set you and I free. Stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit your life again to a yoke of slavery or bondage. Friends, that's God's heart for us. 
to stand firm by abstaining from things and guarding our heart against these realities, to not do as the Romans do, to not submit again to that yoke of slavery that Christ has actually come to set us free from, amen? Maybe you're here today and you say, Pastor Jay, listen, I've blown it. Join the club. (laughs) Welcome to the party. Maybe you say, Pastor Jay, I've, I've fallen into all these traps. Guess what? All of us have. And if we claim to say that we haven't, we're just lying to ourselves. Listen to what Apostle John says in 1 John 1, 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is what? Not in us. But if we confess our sins, hallelujah, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of all our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And if we claim we have not sinned, then we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. As I already said, every single one of us has fallen into any of these realities at some point or another, whether in the heart or whether through practice. And then listen to what 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 through 2 says to us to give us this hope. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. God doesn't want us to fall into these traps, you guys. But if anybody does sin, here's some good news for you. We have an an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Friends, there's only one solution for sin, and his name is Jesus the righteous. And the scriptures tell us that he is our advocate. He is the atoning sacrifice and not just our atoning sacrifice, but the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, praise God. So what do we need to do? We need to confess our sins, and we need to trust Jesus with them, amen? That's it, it doesn't have to be any more complicated than that. You confess your sins and trust Jesus, the righteous one, to be your righteousness and your salvation. Can we pray? Father, we thank you today for your word, your word which speaks a better word over our lives. We thank you for the blood of Jesus that was spilled to atone for every single one of our sins. There's nothing we can do to take away from your love. There's nothing we can do to make you love us more. You love us because you died for us and you died for us to rescue us from the reality of sin, death, and the devil. For anybody here today that doesn't know you, I just wanna give you an opportunity right now to say yes to Jesus. And here's how you do it. You confess your sin before him. You say, God, here's the stuff where I've screwed up, where I haven't made the mark, where I've rebelled, where I've transgressed against you. Forgive me. Forgive me. Take away my sin. And then you confess him as Lord. You say, come and be the the Savior of my life. Be the Lord of my life. Be the Messiah and the director of my life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit all the days of my life. And if that's you today, I just want to encourage you to do that, even now, as we're praying. And for anybody here today that just feels caught up in the, the cycle of any one of these things, hopefully not blood or hopefully not sexual morality or idolatry, but Lord, if any of those things ring true for any of us today, then then help us, God, to receive the weight of your correction and your conviction today, to not run from it, to welcome it. Because you love us, God, you wanna remove these things from our lives. You wanna work them out of our lives. We trust you today with that in the mighty name of Jesus. And all God's people said amen and amen. Thank you for listening today. If you were blessed and you want to be a part of what God is doing through Courageous Church, including ways that you can give, visit us online at CourageousChurch.com.